and lead us in the way we should go. Thank you that you will do it, Father, because you promise that uh, you will go before us. And Lord, as Moses said, there's no point in us going if you don't go with us. And so um, I know that I don't want to move. None of us want to go on, Lord, if you're not with us. So we trust that you will be. We thank you for what you are doing uh, in and through each one of us and in and through this ministry. And we ask, Lord God, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives, Lord, and, and that you would show us those areas where we are perhaps not doing what we might do and help us to, to draw close to you, Lord, and to be unafraid, actually, to ask for you to search our hearts and show us any hidden faults. So we thank you, Lord, that you will do that. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, we've been talking about faith and its um, functions and also its consequences. So a function equals a, con a consequence or the results of faith. We've been talking about that a lot. Jesus has been talking about that in, in Luke. And um, we're in Luke. We finished last week in Luke 17. And uh, just by way of review, uh, from verse 11 onwards, uh, for those few verses 11 to 19 Jesus is taught his term has the we have the sorry we have the situation of the 10 lepers who come to Jesus for for healing and he says to them um, go and show yourselves to the priest this is Luke 17 verse 14 go and show yourselves to the priests and then last week we talked a lot about the fact that as they were going they were cleansed and so uh, and that's true all through scripture i think i said that last week that it is as we obey that we receive the blessing the cleansing the healing and uh, that's true from from genesis through to revelation when Jesus says something or when God tells us something, we will not get the blessing unless we obey. So what we said last week or, um, or what we talked about last week and the week before was that faith stimulates obedience. It, uh, it activates. Faith is a doing word and the doing of faith is obedience. Jesus will say, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's a simple thing. It's not what we like to hear because we don't like the word obedience. We prefer the word faith. But faith equals obedience. And that's what Jesus showed us in there. And, um, and then in the next part of Luke 17, verse 20 to verse 37, uh, Jesus talks about the fact that faith provides certainty. That uh, a faith that is active and actively obeying what we hear it provides us certainty that God is who he says he is and that we are saved, um, that we are saved, that we belong to God. And he talked there through from um, verse 20, as I say, through to verse 37, um, that uh, we can be sure of certain things because we know that the one who promised them or talked about them is true. So when you read from 20 down to 37, it's hard to find the word certainty. But what Jesus says is uh, that people will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but they will not see it. They will say, look here, look there, uh, but don't follow them because 
The Son of Man, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. He must suffer, he must die, he must be raised to life. And then on the day that I come back, come back to put my feet on the planet, it will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And the days of Noah, we looked at last week, Genesis 6, wickedness was increasing. God was grieved in his heart that he'd made man because the wickedness of man was just increasing and increasing. And he said that he was going to destroy the earth with flood. And the days of Lot, when uh, you have that example of the angels coming to visit Lot because God is going to rain down judgment on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, the men of the city coming to Lot's door and asking that he, he sends out the two men, they thought they were men, that were visiting Lot so that they could have sexual relations with him. So the, again, the wickedness, the sin of man... Uh, causing God to pour out judgment. And one of the things that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples that are following him is that there's going to be judgment. And it's going to happen just as it did in the day of Lot and just as it did in the day of Noah. God is going to pour out his judgment on this world because this world is living apart from him and is actually glorying in the fact that they live apart from him. And what he's telling us, what he's telling his disciples, and what he's telling us through what they've written down, we can be certain of it. And that's the thing. You and I can be certain that these things will happen because we know the one who said they would happen. So faith, um, I don't know what it was like when you believed, first of all, when you came to the Lord you probably would have described it to someone by saying, you believe in the Lord Jesus. And even now you might say that, I believe in the Lord Jesus. But actually, you don't believe in the Lord Jesus in the way it's understood. Actually, you know the Lord Jesus. And that's your testimony now. Not that you believe in Jesus, although that's what you had to do, but that you know him. And so this... Uh, that's what I mean by certainty. You move from saying, I, I believe that's true, to saying, I know that that's true. Yeah. Know him. Uh, he said, and the power of his resurrection, that's what Paul talked about in Philippians 3, that he pressed on to know Christ. And the thing is, you know him, but what I think Jesus has been showing us is that as you believe and put your trust in, as you believe and put your trust in what he says, you become certain, more and more certain of who he is. And that stimulates your obedience to obey what he says because you, you know him to be the God who saved you. And it isn't now obedience because you're afraid. It's obedience because you want to obey him because you know the one who's asking for your obedience. That differentiates those who truly know Jesus from those who just keep the rules out of fear or for whatever reason. And that's what he's trying to get over to his disciples. Faith is more than a simple creed. It's more than a doctrine. It's more than just, uh, even to say just a book. I know that this is not just a book, but you know what I mean. It's not just the words on the page. It's that you know the one who said these things. And you know him so well that you know he's saying them today. And so... It's not for you that, oh, I've got to do that. I don't want to do that, but I've got to. It's simply that it's going to be a tri bit tricky for me because I know my humanness is going to pull back from that. But Lord, I want to obey you. 
I don't want to be afraid because you tell me not to be afraid. I don't want to run around all over town. I don't want to do those things because they don't honor you. And as you're saying these things, Jesus is actually becoming more and more real to you. It's not that he isn't real. It's just that you are getting to know him better. Um, Yeah, you're more aware of him and you are much more certain. And so now you may not understand all the details of how he's going to come back, that he's going to come back and his church is going to be raptured. You may not understand Mm. the timing or the details or even what it's going to look like, but you know it's going to happen because he said so. You know that God will one day judge the world and that those who don't know Jesus will end up in hell. You know it. You don't necessarily want to talk about it with everybody because it's a hard thing to say, but you know that it's true and that shapes the way that you live. Now when you're with people and they don't know Jesus, you now can see them with his eyes and understand this person is destined for an eternity away from God unless... I talk to them about the Lord Jesus, unless I tell them how wonderful he is. I'm not saying it all depends on you, but you know what I mean. It's the, it's the consciousness of the truth that things will happen the way he says they'll happen. And, and that leads us into um, Luke 18, because this is all part of the same, <coughs> I think the same thing that Jesus is trying to talk to us about, about what is faith? What does it look like? What does it do? How does it? How does it? How does it take action? Um, and he's he's talked about this faith that stimulates obedience and provides certainty. And as I say, it's like one thing after the other. Last week I talked about faith being a channel or a tunnel. Well, now I'm going to talk about it as like a stone rolling down a mountain or a snowball rolling down a mountain. As you obey, you roll. And as you obey, you gather more snow. And that makes you more certain. And then as you are more certain and you go further and further and further into this faith, this attitude of believing and knowing, it becomes second nature for you to do the things he says. And you end up at the bottom of this mountain with a boulder of faith when you started with a little pea at the top of the mountain. That's... That is a living, active faith. And that's what God will do as you obey and become more and more certain. So um, Luke 18, uh, he's going to continue, I think, in the same way, although you're probably in your Bible, you've got a different title at the top of the paragraph. But um, Luke 18, could someone read from verse 1 to verse 8, please? In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. <coughs> Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice 
for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith. <coughs> he will find faith on the earth. Thank you. Okay. I mean, I, I know that we talked about this section. I'm, I'm aware that we talked about this section when we were doing um, the short course that we did on prayer. Um, and I don't know if you remember, but I'm going to repeat what I said then. Uh, Jesus is using this parable to show the contrast between the widow and us and the judge and God. In no way are you or I the widow, and God is not this unrighteous judge. And that's the most amazing thing, because most of the time, if you've got titles on your at the top of your Bible paragraphs, or if you get any commentaries, they'll say, this is talking about perseverance in prayer, that you have to keep on coming back to God, keep on, keep on, keeping on. But actually, that's the opposite of what this parable is saying. Jesus tells us here that God is not unrighteous. God is righteous and that he will bring about justice quickly for his elect. There's no sense here that you have to keep persevering to get God to do what you're asking him to do. But the thing that he's doing here in the contrast is showing us that God is not like us. And you remember in Isaiah 55 when... Um, uh, I think in verse 8 and 9, uh, Isaiah says, or God says, For my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my thoughts different to yours. That's a paraphrase, not quite right. But um, So what Jesus is doing is revealing God to them and through them to us. And what, what he's trying to get them to understand is the contrast. He's using this parable as a contrast. Um, this woman keeps coming to the judge. What's she asking for, actually? She's asking for justice, and she's asking for justice because she needs protection. She needs protection from whom? Her adversary or her opponent. Okay, so as a believer in the Lord Jesus, with God as your father, who do you need protection from? You need protection from the enemy, and you need justice against the enemy. And what will the enemy be doing for you, you who have come to the Lord Jesus? What is he trying to do? He's trying to draw you away from God, and he will do that by any manner of, of works, but predominantly he will do that through the arrows that he shoots into your mind because he wants you to, to think that God is not who he says he is. And as soon as he can do that, you have no hope. So you have no joy, no peace, you have no hope because if God isn't a righteous God, if he isn't compassionate and loving and kind and merciful and faithful, then you and I are dead in the water. We cannot, we can't help ourselves and we then have a God who won't help us. That is not the God that Jesus is um, is, is talking about here. He's showing us this contrast so that we understand that God will quickly bring about justice. And he says right at the beginning, um, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. What does it mean to lose heart? 
get discouraged. So what is the antidote for discouragement? It, it, just in that sentence, prayer. Prayer is the antidote for discouragement. So when you pray, what are you actually doing when you pray? I know you're speaking. Hmm? Exactly. You're affirming that the God you're talking to actually wants to listen, actually cares, and actually has the answer for your particular requests or even, even your unspoken requests. What you're doing when you pray is you're, you're actually inwardly confirming that God is real. You're confirming that to yourself, to other people, to the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Praying is the way that you affirm your own faith to a certain extent. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. Don't be discouraged. Keep praying. Remember Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He says, rejoice always and pray unceasingly. Pray unceasingly. Well, how can you pray unceasingly? Exactly. How do we do that? What is, so it must be an attitude that is, is growing and growing in us. This constant, constant confirmation and affirmation that God is real, that he's here, that he cares, that he loves, that I am facing this problem, but he's already prepared the answer. Why? Because God will quickly bring about justice for his elect. That there is nothing that the opponent can withhold from us or take from us because we belong to a God who has promised to protect us, who is keeping us for Jesus. And, and that's, I think, this is what Jesus is talking about with this parable and this prayer. And I'm not saying there's not other stuff in there. Of course there is. There's probably layers and layers and layers of things in here. But one of the things in this section about faith is that prayer affirms your faith. It is, um, it, A, it's a command of God, pray unceasingly. Do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. When you pray, not if you pray, Jesus answered his disciples. So there is this command to pray. Your obedience to that command actually builds your certainty about the one that you're praying to. And that's really important because we can't see him. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't hear him audibly. So we are trusting. We are trusting in who he says he is and in this inner uh, affirmation of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that voice of the Spirit can get a little bit drowned out by the voice of the enemy or even our own thoughts. Praying unceasingly is the way that we protect ourselves from those things. And it's a command. And so you know, if you find the way to pray unceasingly, to develop that attitude of such trust and such reliance on God, you can be sure that your certainty in his promises will start to build and build and build. And you will start to have a faith that is unwavering. That actually enables you to stand when all about you are falling. That will enable you to move forward even in the face of what may seem like impossible odds. I just, I love that. Don't you love that about God? That, that every command is, is a blessing. 
every, every act of obedience actually is a, we are rewarded by such amazing blessing. And the blessing is something that I couldn't show you and you couldn't show me. The blessing is that God makes himself known to you in ways you haven't seen before. Yeah. 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 No. No. They're all good. And the amazing thing, Anne, don't you think, is that he says that every act of obedience glorifies him. That the angels rejoice when we obey. Yes. Exactly. So. As far as people who are beheaded. Oh. And if you think of all the disciples. Yes, yes, they all died. Yeah. And therefore. Yeah, I'm talking about protection of the soul, Simon. Oh. I don't think he protects us physically. Oh, I, I think he's able to. You no, 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 that's fine. That's a really good, uh, really good question because, yeah, Christians around the, around the world are dying for their faith and they're dying horribly and they're being persecuted. But I think that the, the testimony of those people, we won't hear the testimony of those who've been beheaded for their faith, but the testimony of people who've been imprisoned for their faith, we do hear that often. And that testimony is just a wonderful, glorious testimony. Um, and I'm not, yeah, so not physical protection necessarily, but the protection against the enemy who is coming with his <coughs> arrows and his... Um, and also mm, God does give extra help to yeah. people who are suffering. Yes. I was reading a story Mm. And there was was freezing cold. They had no blankets. And they felt warm every time they went to their on this floor with no clothing. The Lord really helped us. Yeah. 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 Those extreme things people have to suffer. Yes. Give extra. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I love the bit when you said that He delays over us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was just such a Mm. I think this understanding that God knows. He knows what you're going to suffer. He knows what you're going to face. And he's already provided for that and prepared for it. And actually, that's your testimony, Angela. Sorry to point you out, but it's obvious to me. That's your testimony. And, and that's the testimony of people who face otherwise unbearable circumstances, that God is amazingly present and he does give you what you couldn't find anywhere else. Not that he removes the physical pain or, the, or everything. That's not always the case. But that he does, in a miraculous way, give you the ability to, to walk through it with him. Um, so how does, who is our opponent? Satan. How does God protect us? Through his word, by his spirit. When did he provide this protection? Because you know, what we're going to talk about with this uh, prayer, the weapon of war, is that it's not your words that are the weapon. It's the word of God that is the weapon. So when did God provide the protection that you and I need for our soul and spirit against the enemy? When did he provide it? 
Well, when he, it's when he wrote, wrote it down. I mean, I, you could say that it was provided before the foundation of the world because Christ Jesus is the Word of God. He's the Logos of God, the outspoken thought of God. But, but, he, but let's say for practical purposes, he provided protection for you through his Word when someone, Tyndale, translated it into English into common English. You and I and all the people before us and after us have the, now have the promise of God in a language we can understand. And he, in the way that he is, because by his spirit, he moves that into, into our very being and imprints it on our soul. And we are protected by this word. Yeah. 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 And your testimony is that you learned to read through the Bible. See, that's just an amazing testimony. And, and that's a practical te testimony, actually. But what that did, because you could read, was it made the promises of God available to you. Yeah. So, um, he was tending animals. You didn't go to school then? I did. I wish I hadn't. It was a waste of my life. Had a hard time at school. Mm. So, he provided this protection long before the world began because Christ is the Word. And by his Spirit, he has made it real to you. Now, you and I can read it and we can be uh, held by it and we can be strengthened in it. All of those wonderful things that he does through the promises. And um, how do you know that you know this? See, how do you know that you know that what I've just said is true? Because you experience it and because the truth has really set you free. You know, Jesus says in John 8, doesn't he, which we're going to have on the wall in the other place, John 8, 32, if you are truly my disciples, you will continue in my... No, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And that doesn't just set you free from the beginning, like justify you so you're set free from your uh, slavery to sin, although it does do that, but it's a continuing making free, liberating bringing us out into the glorious promised land of salvation in Christ Jesus. And that's what his word does. So when God says, and when you're discipled, if you were ever discipled at the beginning, when I was discipled and told to read my Bible for at least 15 minutes every day, I was like, why do I have to do that? Because I saw that as a, as a regulation, and I don't like regulations. I am rebellious by nature. And I did not want to read my Bible. But once I started to understand, there's not a regulation, it's a blessing. It was like I couldn't get enough of reading my Bible. I just wanted to do it more and more. And that's, that's what God does through our obedience. Exactly. Exactly. In me, yeah. It's wonderful, isn't it? But how do we know that? Only we only know that because someone somewhere put a Bible in your hand and said, "Take a look at this." 
And, and so that's why discipleship is like, I, I mean, you just cannot overestimate its importance. It is, it is this, I think, the single biggest work that you can do for another human being is help them to grow in the Lord. And we are all responsible to do it. We are all responsible for it. And because you're not just giving them the words on the page, you're not just giving them the, your doctrine or your theology, because that's probably not worth having, but it's what you're giving them is the very words of God and the certainty, the certainty that they're on the right road. And, I mean, you just can't put a price on that. So, faith then, uh, the truth has made you free. Faith um, informed, if you like, and established by the word of God is a central element in prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about when we're talking about prayer, the weapon of war. It is absolutely imperative that we pray the word of God. Yes. Um, and... Uh, and that we pray with confidence. And the confidence comes as we start to trust the word of God, as we start to obey what he says and find that that has brought certainty and confirmation and affirmation. And as that goes on, what starts to happen to you? As you start to understand that uh, the word of God is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. When you understand that God's word reveals his character to you, what happens? You want to read it more, right? You want to, you want to know this God more. And when you want to know this God more and you, cut and you start to read his word and you don't understand part of it, what do you do? You pray. And so suddenly you find that the two fundamental commands in Scripture for a believer, read the Word, study the Word, and pray, you are doing, not because it was a command, but because you want to. And as you do that, not only is it building your own faith, you're growing up your faith, but you're understanding more and more and more about the faithfulness of God because he has answered your prayer and he has given you wisdom. That's why people who don't study the word, who don't read the word, even though they're saved and they're Christians, they live at best a very shallow kind of darting here and there, trying to find joy, trying to find peace. Because, because it's only the word of God, it, undergirded by prayer, that will uh, give you the peace and the joy and the foundation. You know this. I know that you know this. But it's... It's more than what we already know. It's more. Because as we're doing this thing, what's happening is that God is starting to talk to us about the fact that it is not your faith that will save you. It's not your faith that will take you to heaven. It's Christ's faithfulness that will do it. That his faithfulness is what you depend on. You're not depending on your faith. You're not depending on your certainty or your obedience or your prayer life or your study life. You are depending solely on the faithfulness of Christ to take you home. I could weep when I think about it because it releases such a burden from your shoulders that you don't have to do anything because Christ is carrying you home. He is sufficient. He has done it all. He is, 
Yes, and my burden is light. He is enough. He is more than enough to get us across the finish line. Yes. And that, that, that understanding that God is faithful, that he, has, he will do it, it frees us now. It frees us to fail it frees us to make mistakes. It frees us to be totally real and vulnerable with one another because I know, I know that, I know that, I know that Christ is going to take me home. And whatever I say and whatever I do and however many mistakes I make and however many times I fall, he will take me home. He will take me home. And all of his... Uh, love and all of his compassion and all of his energy is focused on enabling me to work out my salvation, to, to get as much out of my salvation as I possibly can so that I live with joy and peace, so that I am compassionate to other people, so that I understand the shortness of this life and the length of eternity, so that what happens about me is less important than what happens about you so that other people become more important than me, so that I don't listen to the lies of the enemy that tell me to love myself because I know that God loves me enough for both of us. I, you could, you know, and he doesn't stop here. That's what is so, so amazing to me, that he goes on in Luke 18 and into 19, and he starts, even though he's talking about what seem to be totally different subjects, they're all linked to this understanding of faithful, the faithful God and our trust in him. And so can we go on to, somebody read verse 9 to verse 17, please, of Luke um, 18. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, but everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you. Okay, so Jesus is going on now, and he's still continuing the prayer theme. He's talking about prayer. Um, He's been talking about obedience and about certainty and about this, the strength of our uh, trust in, in God and who he is. And now he's talking about prayer and trying to differentiate between uh, misplaced confidence and true understanding. And, and you know, we've all read this before. So the Pharisee does pray. He is praying, which is something we're supposed to do. Um, but he comes and he's praying out of his own self-righteousness. And it's obvious to see. So why do you think he's self-righteous? Or why is he praying on that basis? Because he's, 
Yeah. Yeah. He's being very religious. Yeah. He's keeping all the laws that he knows to keep, and uh, he's self-satisfied and self-righteous. And uh, but what do you know about him? So you could always, you could say he's self-assured and he's got a lot of pride. You could say that. But what else, what else does he have underneath that? Yeah, he's contemptuous. Yeah, he despised others. Yeah. It is. It's the opposite. Yeah, because he's promoting his own self-righteousness. But the reality is, he does not believe. He cannot believe in the way we understand believing because he doesn't... He, he is praying out of his unbelief. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know God. Because if he knew God, he would either be too afraid to say all the things he's done... Or he would know that all the things he'd done were nothing compared to what his, who his God is. So you know that this Pharisee had no belief. He's praying out of unbelief. And that's what's so interesting. Because there are so many religious people who, who feel self-righteous because they are doing the right thing. And even they're praying and even they're reading their Bible. But they do not know God. And so if you don't know God, you have to put your confidence somewhere. And this Pharisee was putting it in his own self-righteousness, in his own legalism. It is, exactly. But the heart attitude, you see, the thing is you can't change your heart attitude. You We're powerless to do that. That's what he's going to say about the tax collector. The tax collector is going to say, have mercy on me, a sinner, because he understands he's got no hope without the mercy of God. And actually, that's the reality for us. Because realistically, if Christ doesn't take us home, you and I are never going to get there. We won't be able to be good enough. We won't be able to do enough or say enough or pray enough or study enough. We won't be able to understand enough. If God doesn't make good on his promise, you and I are finished. And that's the reality. So this, this tax collector, what is it he says? Um, he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Actually, that's, that's the cry of someone who believes who has come and trusting that, that God is a merciful God, that, that he has nothing to offer. But the God, if God is not this merciful God, then we're all done for, as I said earlier. And so he comes. And, and, um, and what Jesus is going to say is that that faith, that understanding of who we are is only... Only, we only understand who we are as we see God for who he is. So we understand more and more about who God is, about ourselves, as we see who God is. And so in a sort of weird way, it's almost like the opposite, because you think, as I know God, I should feel better and better about myself, because that means I've walked on more and more with him. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's sort of a conundrum, isn't it? Because why is that? That actually I'm doing, I know that I know God and I know that he's true and I know that everything's, I'm going to go to be with him and I understand and I'm reading the word and I'm receiving blessing. But even at the same time as that's going on, I'm growing in my awareness of how little I deserve it. 
and how far I still have to go and that want to go and how much closer I want to be. And it's that, isn't it? That is that that is also an affirmation to us, a confirmation that we are where we should be with the Lord. And, and doesn't he go on? He says, um, and, they, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. And Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And that's exactly what he's been talking about all this way through. Children are helpless. Children can't do anything. Children understand their helplessness, actually. Children get afraid easily. Children need their father, need their parents. Children run for cover. That's the life of a disciple of Jesus. It's the growing understanding that I am helpless without Christ. But, and they trust, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But essentially, that attitude of a child is the attitude that we, we have when we pray. Because when you're praying, you're saying to God, I'm, I can't fix this. I don't, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to make this work. I don't know how to sort this problem out. I don't, know, I don't even know what to do tomorrow. I have no, I, no clue. You can't imagine, can you, a more different attitude between these two. No, exactly. Even the extent that he, um, the Pharisee was pointing a finger mm. at the other Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thank goodness I'm not He's like him. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Yeah. And the thing is, it's the opposite. It's the opposite to what our culture is telling us to do. Our culture is, is urging us, stand up, be strong, be independent, be, be resilient, be all of those things. And God is saying, if you don't come like a little child, i.e. if you don't, if you don't lay aside all of that stuff, you won't get into the kingdom of God. But we treat people who are, who show weakness, we treat them with contempt. We, because that's humanly what we do. Because we have bought into the lie that we have to be strong and independent and fend for ourselves. We have all those things. God helps those who help themselves. That's a lie. He doesn't. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Yes. We talk about people who are needy. Oh, he or she. She's so needy. You know, I mean, honestly, I've been praying with her for, for months and months and years and years, and she's still got the same old, same old issues. And there's a kind of contempt in us about that. Why? Because actually we're all needy. <laughs> At the base of us, we all need God all of the time. And, and anything that kind of... We use words that have a, a kind of denigrating effect. Oh, they're very weak. Their faith is not strong. I mean, how many times do you hear that? Your faith is not strong. Well, 
My faith is not strong. My faith is like this. It won't hold my weight. And I know that, I know that my, my trust in the, in the faithfulness of Christ is everything. But my own faith won't save me. And nor will yours. And we have to start thinking about how we, uh, how we witness to Christ. Because, because we have to be real human beings who are weak and afraid sometimes and unable to cope with what the world throws at us because we have to show the strength of our God. That's what Paul says, doesn't he, in First Corinthians, no, Second Corinthians. He says, um, I think it's chapter 1. Um, it's a really, really um, uh, personal letter. And he says, um, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. And so, uh, uh, For we do not want you to be unaware, verse 8, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. You know, this is not a man who was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so strong. I'm, I, nothing can hurt me. It's 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. And, and in Acts chapter, I think it's Acts 22, um, when uh, Jesus comes to Paul, um, Acts 20 maybe, when he's in um, Ephesus and he, uh, Jesus comes to him. I'll, I'll find the verse in a minute. Um, uh, Jesus comes to him and says, um, Do not be afraid, for I have many in this city. Is that it's Acts eighteen nineteen? No, uh, this is to Paul. Um, I can't find it. I'm using a different Bible, so it's not in the right place. I can't. Hey, no, it's um, it's do not be afraid, for I have many in this city. Um, uh, it's when he's in Ephesus, I think. Um, is it nineteen? Yeah, thank you. Um, I believe so. Let me see. Uh, is it Corinth? Okay, thank you. Can you remember where it is? 18, yeah. Oh, yes, it is. Thank you. 18, and it's verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So what you can know from that is an amazing thing that Jesus or God is promising to protect Paul, even physically protect him, but you know that Paul was afraid. He was afraid. And, and he's not afraid to write that, which is also amazing. That he's telling, he's telling not only the people who wrote, read his letters then, but he's telling everyone down through history that he was afraid. So there's no shame in it. There's no shame in being weak. There's no shame in being afraid. There's no shame in not being able to manage. There's no shame in being a human being because Christ has done Everything to take your shame, to take your guilt, and everything about it. And that's what's so wonderful. And that's what he's saying, um, that um, you must come as a child. 
and um, and he's going to go on now, I think, because he's talked about prayer and and how all of these things um, are part of what faith is and what faith does. And now he's going to go on, and I think really crucially in our day, he's going to talk about the fact that faith in and of itself is not sufficient for anything. Faith has to have an object, and the object of our faith has to be strong enough to do what we need doing. And that's what he's going to go on to. He's going to come across um, the rich young ruler. And uh, you see, we tend to think about faith as a kind of, kind of an airy-fairy sort of thing, you know. And that we talk about faith will save us. We talk about our prayer. Our prayers have power, don't we? The power of prayer. Well, I'm sorry to say your prayers have no power at all. None. It is, yeah, sorry. Well, mine do, Mike, but not yours. (laughs) None of our, prayer has no power. Prayer is the channel through which God pours his power. It is God who has power, not our prayers. Our prayers are simply our running to him because we have no power and saying, God, will you do what I can't do? You know. And then he does it. So, yes, he works through the prayers of his people. I mean, amazingly, he's left us here to pray. And when we pray, he works. But it's him who works and not us. We ask him to do what we cannot do. That's what prayer is. That's how children come to their fathers. Is you're the dad and I'm the child. You're strong and I'm not. You're intelligent and I'm not. You're wise and I'm not. It's all of those things. And I'm not saying there is, humanly speaking, of course... James will say, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give you wisdom. I'm not saying that he doesn't give you the blessings, but what I am saying, we have to change our language. If you tell me that your prayers are powerful, then all I start doing is thinking, oh my goodness, what about mine? Will you teach me the words to use? Will you give me your words? Because my words are not good enough. And that's not it. And so what Jesus is doing now is he's saying... um, what I think he's been saying all the way through, actually, about faith, and that it's not our faith that will save us. It's not our prayers that have power. It's all about God. And the more we know God, the more we trust him, and the more we will um, put our faith and our trust in him, and, and we will talk to him. And so he's going to say, the rich young ruler comes along, and um, he's going to come to Jesus, and he has that conversation, verse 18 of chapter 18, um, yeah, why don't somebody read that from um, verse 18 of 18 to 27, please? Someone read that. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, I good. No one is good. One, that is God. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honour your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, because he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful and said, He said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Thank you. Okay, so now a very simple, straightforward story. The young man comes to Jesus, and uh, how does he address him? Good teacher, yeah. And so what do you know about this man? Yeah, but also he doesn't know that Jesus is God. He doesn't yet believe it. He doesn't. He knows he's, he's a good man, a good teacher, but he doesn't know him as God. And so he. And what? What's his? What's his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So not only does he not believe that Jesus is God, he also thinks that he must do something to receive, inherit eternal life. And um, and Jesus knew these things about him. So what does Jesus say? Yeah, yeah. So many people did that this morning. It's like cut straight to the jugular. Let's go in there, give away your money. But actually, Jesus doesn't do that. What he does is he says to this young man... Um, that, uh, how does he do it? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not fear. Uh, sorry, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Actually, what he does is he says to the young man all the things that he has done. All the things that he's done. And so it's almost like he's, uh, he's kind of, he's letting this young man know in a roundabout way that actually partly what he's doing is correct. And those things are all about his relationship with other people. They're all about our kind of... And so this, this young man was probably fairly kind. He was probably helpful. He was what we might call a good young man. But Jesus did what he does all the time with people. And he cuts straight in through to the heart and says, go sell all you have and follow me. Why does he do that? Mm? I think it's full surrender for the rich young man. I suppose the thing that I want, wanted to really know is that that's not what, what... If Jesus were to talk to you now, today, he perhaps wouldn't say that to you. Because he would cut straight through your heart and show you the thing that you were putting your trust in that wasn't him. Exactly. Exactly. What? To, yeah. And what? So what Jesus is showing him in in that way is sell all your possessions and come follow me. Is there's something blocking you from God? You, there's something blocking you from eternal life. You're putting your confidence in something that won't save you. And so he cuts straight in. Now I don't know. I don't know what he would say to you. I don't know what he, would say, what he would have said to me. I don't know if I'd had that conversation. But you know. Because believers do this as well as unbelievers. They put their confidence in something other than God. They put their confidence in the work that they're doing for God, the missions that they're doing, the amount of money they give. The, they, they put their confidence in other things apart from God himself. And that's because we are all taught, even believers, that we must be strong. 
and that we must be good and that we must do, 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 do the work that God created in advance for us to do. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but what I am saying is you can't do the work that God created for you to do unless Christ is first in your life. Because the work that God created for you to do was to glorify him. And if you are doing, trying to do that work with your confidence in any other thing, you will fail. Yeah, you have to rest in the finished work of God, of Christ, yeah. It's hard though, because, because humanly we want to strive, we want to get out there and work for God. But I, that's why I think it's so crucial that we understand who God is and that we understand who we are. Because when you do, you realize you could work from now to the end of eternity and you wouldn't achieve anything if God didn't help you. Um, so the man goes away because he chose wealth. He chose his own wealth over God. It was too much. He wasn't going to surrender that part of himself. Now, I know because in my own life, there's been many points where Jesus, God, has come to me and shown me things in my life that I have to surrender. You know, that, and, and there's lots of things. No, you know, too many to, to share. But, you know, because, because God won't leave you where you are, and that's his way of drawing you closer, by showing you the actual thoughts and intentions of your heart and where you are placing your confidence. And, and as believers, we are prone to do that. Our ministries and, our, as I say, our missions and, and all of the things that we do for God... Not, I don't, I'm not trying to say that you're thinking, oh, I'll get a great reward for that. I know that that's not in your mind. But, but inevitably, what, what happens is we get dragged along into this idea that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing instead of understanding that we can't do anything at all. Mm. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Yes, exactly. It is. And you were taught that as a child, yeah, as was I, as was I. Yes, self-sufficient, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the reality, yes, you're right, it's this work ethic, this, this Protestant, I, I don't know if it's not Catholic, but it also is Protestant work, worth ethic, work ethic that, um, um, and again, it's the opposite of faith. As you say, Mike, striving, you know. Yes, and people quote that. It's from Psalm 56, is it, or somewhere? Cease striving and know that I am God. But that's not spoken to believers. That's spoken to the nations who are coming against God. Cease striving and know that I am God. There's no point in striving against me. <laughs> yeah. Be still, yeah. And know that I am God. But that's spoken, as I say, to the enemies of God. You are not an enemy of God now. So, um, the, the, uh, just uh, to finish this, this chapter, uh, not the chapter, just this section. The uh, disciples, of course, they can't understand it. They can't understand. Peter says, well, you know, um, 
then they heard it and they said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, these, these, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter then says, well, we've left our own homes and followed you. And, um, and Jesus then says, more will be given to you, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, all those you've left. Um, what do you think he means by that? You're going to get more in this life, in the, in, in, at this time and in the age to come. Exactly. That you'll be part of a huge family of um, believers and uh, you won't be lacking for fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And um, um, yeah. Um, and the fruit of their lives, you know, the, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the, the fruit of the spirit that will be within them and also the fruit of, of, of their work, their labors, that they're going to bring many to salvation. Peter is going to stand, isn't he, on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are going to believe because of his... And you can imagine the joy in his heart at that. That's what Jesus is talking about in this age and in the age to come. Um, and then finally, um, he goes on um, regarding the power of this faith that he's talking about, or the power of God through the faith that he's been describing. And, um, and what he does is he gives two examples. What, what can faith do, faith that rests in Jesus and, and that is convinced of God's love? Um, he's going to go on to say... Uh, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called, uh, man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to, the get to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So um, two little tiny vignettes of what happens 
the blind beggar on the road who Jesus passes by and he cries out in the same words that the sinner in the previous parable or description cried out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, um, and what does Jesus do? Gives him his sight. So what's the message to us when we cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner? When you came to the Lord Jesus, what did he do? He gave you sight. He gave you the eyes of faith so that you could see the things that are unseen, that you could be convinced of the things that you couldn't see, that you could tell the difference between reality and the image that's in front of you, that you would know um, the truth. So he gave you the eyes of faith. And, uh, and then with Zacchaeus, what happened with him, with the, um, the tax collector? He goes up a tree because he wants to see Jesus. Um, then what? Jesus wants him to come down because he wants to see in his house. Yeah, and what does he do? Yeah, he comes down. And what does Jesus do with that man? So he gave the beggar sight. And now with this, with this tax collector, what do you know has happened to this tax collector? Just from the things that he said. He's defrauded a lot of people. And he's, but what's he offering to do? Give it all back. Give, it, give back half of his uh, things. What, do you, what would you call that in Zacchaeus? Yeah, he's restoring things. But what's happened inside him? He's repenting. And he is transformed. He is transformed. So those two little things, um, what happens to the person who puts their trust in Jesus and who continues to cry out, not in these words, but have mercy on me, a sinner. You're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint when you have come into the family of God. But your attitude to God is the same. Have mercy on me because I can't do any of it without you. But the reality is he gives you your sight to be sure of what the things that are unseen. And then he transforms you so that you're able to do what the rich young ruler couldn't do. He couldn't sell his possessions and follow Jesus. But Zacchaeus immediately wants to give away half of what he's taken and, and pay back those people he's defrauded because of the transformation that faith in Jesus brings. Because what does faith in Jesus actually do for you? When you put your trust in, in Jesus, what actually happened to you? I think it's a balance. Yeah, no, what's the actual physical thing that happened to you? Yes, you're right. Mm? You died and you were raised up to life. And how do you know that? What was given to you? New life and joy, but you were given the spirit of Christ to live within you. And the spirit of Christ has the eyes of faith that you didn't have before. The spirit of Christ is a transforming spirit. So you cannot be the same with the Holy Spirit within you. And that's what's happening to you, isn't it? And that's what has happened to you. Exactly, and onto God, which is the only place that it should be. So it's not any longer your faith. Your faith brought you to Christ, but he's done everything else. 
He, every single human being that has ever been born, who ever will be born, will have the opportunity, the potential to believe in Jesus. You know that I've come away from the Calvinistic idea of being, some are chosen for salvation and some are chosen for, for destruction. I do not believe that. It doesn't matter what I believe, so you need to find what you believe. But I do not think that that is true about God. I think that every person has the opportunity to put their trust in God. And that when you do, he makes good on the promise to transform you, to conform you to the image of his son. That he will change you from the inside out so that you are holy in his sight. if you thought what you said you thought, like someone, yeah. then that free will wouldn't have been there. Exactly, no free will. God loves the whole Exactly, for God, yeah. No, no. It's an interesting theological debate, and I shouldn't have brought it up at 8.30. I'm really sorry. Dishonor, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, another day, another thing. But what does faith in Jesus bring you? It brings. It starts to. It starts to help you to obey what He's t- talking, telling you to do, because you now know Him to be the God who came for you, and you don't know Him well enough yet. But you start to think, maybe I'll do what He says, and as you do what He says, you grow in your knowledge of Him, and then so it goes on, um, and there's a confidence in you that wasn't there before. And the more you know God, the more confident you are. Even though at the same time, you know how little you deserve to know him. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is wonderful, isn't it? Because before you were trying to muster up confidence in yourself, even though you knew your own weakness, or part of your own weakness. So, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? For years... I tried to be what I thought I wanted to be. I couldn't really do it properly because I didn't have the necessary things to be what I wanted to be. And then you, you meet Jesus and you realize, wow, I'm so glad I'm not that person anymore. Yeah. Love and obey. Yes. You obey him, yeah. It's actually quite clear in scripture, isn't it? Yes. You know, if you love me, you will obey my commands. <laughs> but we find it difficult. Um, but then when you do love him, you, you actually do things that you, you, you could never do in your own self. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is amazing. It's good to stop and think. It is. I was thinking about the eyesight. Yeah. You know, you, you said that you know, when you get out of the Lord, he opens your eyes. Mm. Mm. Well, in the 50 odd years I've known him, your eyesight gets like wider. Exactly. Right? Yes. It's wider and wider. And brighter and brighter. And brighter, and brighter. Yeah. And never stop, no. No. Yeah. Can you imagine what eternity is going to be like? Oh, well, heaven is just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, Father, thank you that um, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that we can take from it. Thank you that we've only just scratched the surface. That there's so much more. But Lord, we trust that you will show us that in in your perfect timing. So, I thank you for this this group, Lord. I thank you for the fellowship that we share with one another. And I ask, Father, that you would. Um, really go with us. I know that you will. So I'm asking based on your promises that you will never leave us, that you will go before us and beside us and within us actually, and that we we can be sure of your protection uh, through your power as you pour out that powerful protection through this channel that we call faith. So I pray, Lord, that we would keep the channel open, that we would be... Um, be doing the things you've asked us to do because that is the way that we will be able to receive from you the very great blessing that you promise. So I thank you, Lord, and uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. 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 Father, I want to thank you for your time. I want to lift her up. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Not just Anne, take her thank home you. safely, but all those who travel, mm -hmm. take them home safe, us home safely. Yes, thank you, Lord. Mm. Don't let us be silly mm. in our mm. 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 Amen. Amen.